This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to the 270th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host Scott Feinberg and my guest today is a living legend who was a central part of my childhood and so many others. He's an actor who, a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, well, 42 years ago in Hollywood to be exact, originated the part of Luke Skywalker, a farm boy who winds up on a grand adventure in George Lucas's landmark blockbuster, Star Wars, and who will, later this year, appear in his sixth Star Wars film. And he's also done all sorts of outstanding work in between those films, including voicing the part of the Joker in numerous animated and video game productions, starring in five different Broadway shows, and this year, stealing scenes left and right as a battle-hardened member of the Knights Templar, an ancient Catholic order of warrior monks, on the second season of the History Channel's drama series Nightfall, the iconic Mark Hamill. Over the course of our conversation at Hamill's home in Malibu, the 67-year-old and I discussed how Hamill, a Navy brat who spent his childhood all around the world, landed at 17 in Hollywood, what the fateful series of events were that led him to Luke, and how his life changed after moviegoers first saw him in the part, how he felt about the various twists and turns experienced by his character over the decades, and about the people he collaborated with on those films, why he sought out theater and voice acting opportunities between the various installments of Star Wars, and why he was so excited to play on Nightfall, a character who is an SOB and looks nothing like he does, plus much more. I must say, this guest means a lot to me, and I know to many of you, and he did not disappoint. He couldn't have been nicer to me or my team, and so, with thanks to him, and without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Really uh, honored to have you on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. We always begin with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in Oakland, California. I was the middle of seven children. My father was a career naval officer. So I went to nine schools in 12 years. Oh my God. So I was perpetually the new kid. Yeah. I don't even remember Oakland. Six weeks <laughs> later, we moved. Oh my God. Which made it very awkward. I was given the key to the city by Jerry Brown. <laughs> I thought I'm getting the key to the city. That's so cool. Right. 83 people got it that day. <laughs> So there's got to be a lot of locks that those keys uh, match up to. So, you know, if at those various places where you lived as a kid, we were to track down people that knew you, would they all say the same thing if we asked what kind of a kid you were, or were you sort of adapting to each environment? Well, it did give you a chance to try and reinvent yourself, look back and say, what didn't I like about the way it was in Pennsylvania? Right that could be changed when I moved to San Diego. Right. 
It wasn't always successful that way, but I think it reinforces a kind of adaptability Mm -hmm. because at that, you know, when you're young, you just want to fit in, not really stand out. When I was really young, it was exciting because you'd come home from school and say, we're moving to New York. (laughs) I said, great, that's where King Kong's from. You know, I was someone who really was a dreamer. I mean, I love puppets and magic tricks and cartooning and cartoons and comic books. I mean, I'm sure the comic strips that arrived on my door every day helped me to want to read. And I mentioned King Kong. I mean, that movie just changed my life when I saw it on television. First of all, it was epically tragic. I cried my eyes out, you know. It's like it got such a kick when Homer was watching it on The Simpsons. <laughs> Just because he's different. <laughs> so <laughs> the thing that got me was, I didn't know how they did it. You know, these dinosaurs and so forth. So I was mad for information. I'd go to the library and look up microfiche, like the reviews yeah, of King yeah. Kong and so forth. And then I discovered it was stop frame animation. And I was reading things like Famous Monsters of yes. Filmland and so forth. Walt Disney's TV show was uh, one of those shows that pulled back the curtain and showed how they made movies. So it made it more real in my mind, you know, not just being a performer, but the camera crew and the construction, even the caterers. (laughs) I thought, I'm not a bad cook. I mean, if I can't make it, maybe I'll just cater. Well, so the 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 performing instinct, though, how did that develop? Because I think that it was kind of just a fateful thing that you landed in LA around 17 years old, right? right? But you were already into the idea of pursuing acting? Oh, I mean, like way back when. Yeah. I mean, I remember I must have been four or five when I saw Clarence Nash do Donald Duck, you know, how they made cartoons. And a light bulb went off. I don't know what I was thinking, but I realized, oh my gosh, there's a grown up that goes to work and his job is to do Donald Duck. I want that job! <laughs> I did a horrible Donald Duck, but I loved the musicality of speech. I said, why does Stan Laurel talk that way? I'm sorry, Ollie. I mean, I didn't know he was from England. Right. And I had this little tape recorder. I was obsessed with the Universal Horror Films. Yeah. So I was recording Baldus Karloff. I loved his <laughs> voice. It was so engaging. He had a sort of a lisp in a way. <laughs> and listen to them, the children of the night, what music they make. And I'm thinking, where are these people from? I'm asking my dad, where do you think Bella Lugosi is from? He's like, I don't know. He's from Dracula land. <laughs> Go do your homework. He was not really, he, see, I had to keep it a secret. I, first of all, I had brothers and sisters that would ridicule me no end if I said I wanted to go. To be an actor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I didn't really, it wasn't really real to me. I mean, I knew movies came from Hollywood. Now, when we were living in San Diego, my mom took me to Los Angeles. It would have been for my 11th or 12th birthday. We stayed at the Hollywood Roosevelt, and I saw all the footprints at Grauman's Chinese, as it was known then. I remember seeing it to the Mad, 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 Mad World, the day after the premiere you know they still had red carpets and Mm -hmm. so it became more real and then i saw them shooting a tv show so i'm really looking all around and seeing all the people that are doing all these things but i had to keep it in the thought bubble because i didn't want to get teased by my brothers and sisters and my parents were not i mean i did plays you know i hosted variety shows I had a ventriloquist dummy. I look back and I think, I must have been so annoying. But 
that was a revelation to me with the ventriloquist dummy because you could say things and not take responsibility for them, insult people and so forth. I mean, I hosted this variety show in, I think, fifth or sixth grade and was able to you know, ridicule, the, you know, the usual right. cafeteria food, right, right, right. you know, <laughs> all the yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. And I loved all that stuff. Right. I watched Ed Sullivan. I love standup comedians and Don Rickles and Bill Cosby and Joan Rivers and all those people. Well, so what was it that happened that allowed you just really kind of all worked out that you end up in LA and then you know, those first few years, what were they like? Because I'm looking over the credits. Actually, yesterday, I think on Twitter, somebody shared and you reshared the very first acting job was with Bill Cosby. That's right. Then yeah. there's like, you know, nine months of General Hospital in there. Yes. There's Partridge Family. Yeah. So you were, you know, basically well, a teenager, right? And yes. And looking back on it, I can't believe how lucky I was. Now, by the time I graduated from high school, it was at Yokama High School and my drama teacher had seen my dedication and you know if i didn't get a part in a play then i did publicity and sold tickets and all that stuff he was the first grown-up who said to me i think you could have a career if you really want it which was such a validation because no one had ever told me that before uh, his name's mr burl john burl and by the way this year i've done a scooby-doo meets mark hamill and i asked them can and it's set in japan at my high school it's great because i talked to the writers to make it as authentic as we could and uh, they were hesitant to put mr burl b-u-r-r-i-l-l in there i don't know if he has any surviving family so they changed it to b-e-r-l-e like milton burl but he's in there (laughs) he's in there but i came to los angeles thinking Mm -hmm. well i should go to new york because that's the way if you don't have any contacts or you don't have any connections to Hollywood, you go and you drive cabs and you wait tables and you break into theater. So I was on my way to New York, I thought, and at my brother's wedding, there was a guy by the name of Michael Franks who wrote this original musical. And I'd known him because he was my brother's friend over the years. And he knew I was like the only 11 year old with a Richard Nixon impression. <laughs> Let me make this perfectly clear, <laughs> which is just odd in and of itself. So he said, you really showed audition for but you this. were 17 by this point that you're. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. The summer of 1969. And I auditioned and got a part in this play that was done right there at the Melrose, a little theater called at that time. It was called the Horseshoe Theater. I think it's called the Zephyr now. It's ironic because I did an episode of Samantha B and went back to that theater. Oh, really? It's like 45 years later. I've forgotten how small it was, like 99 seats. Yeah. But in any case, just in terms of sheer luck, in the cast was a girl, Lauren Bogus, whose father, Gil Bogus, was in the music industry. And he saw the show several times. And then when we went out for a cast party at, I don't know, Denny's or wherever, <laughs> he said, if you're serious about this, I know people that could help you. And I really want to mention his name, Gil Bogus, because if it weren't for him, who knows? But the odds of me being seen in that first summer after I graduated, I look back, I mean, at the time you just accepted, okay, this is the way it goes. But I had to stay in college, you know, because the draft was very active at that time. And uh, so you finished that out in LA. Yes. I went to LACC for four semesters. $8 $8 in a pen and you're in. <laughs> but I had no money. Again, I right. thank LACC from the bottom of my heart because they have a great drama department and the alumni there is pretty amazing. But I got an agent, you know, I went around and auditioned doing a couple of scenes, comedy and drama, and I got an agent. And like I say, the next summer 
after I got there was when I did the Bill Cosby right. show. So again, you landed in LA in 69. It seems like you would have been cast in Star Wars in like 76, somewhere about yes. there. So there were a few years there where you're grinding out and I read you're living in like a gardener's shed and different, you know, the right. real working actor experience. What was your first inkling? $55 a month. <laughs> to live in the shed. Yes, exactly. It was converted. <laughs> a shower, no bath. Right. But you know, at that age, you know, everything's exciting and adventurous. So what was the first crossing of your radar that there was even something that would become Star Wars? Because it wasn't that originally. And then what was that process to get through? I read something preparing for this that I had no idea about before, which was that I think simultaneously, while Lucas is casting Star Wars, De Palma is casting Carrie at the same thing. Yeah. So I go in and there's two people sitting there and Brian De Palma did all the talking and they didn't tell us about the projects. I knew Carrie was based on the Stephen King novel. I hadn't read it, but I knew what it was about. It was set in high school. And I knew about Star Wars being like a homage to Flash Gordon and that sort of thing. But like I say, it was basically a cattle call where they said, so tell us a little bit about yourself. And I basically did what I'm doing here with you. Middle of seven children, blah, blah, blah. And they said, thank you. And I left. And I remember saying to a friend after I came out, I said, who was that little guy with the beard with Brian? Was that his assistant? They said, no, you moron. That was George Lucas. I said, really? Because he didn't speak at all. For people that want to be reminded of the chronology, he was coming off of American Graffiti, so he wasn't yes. nobody. Oh, but no. It was, and yeah. listen, American Graffiti remains one of my favorite really? movies. I mean, it's totally out of left field. I love when that happens, yeah. when you see a movie that you have no preconceived notions about. And it was so funny and so engaging and so real to me. But then a month later, they said, OK, you're going to do a screen test. I said, okay. And I get the screen test. Did you know which of these two projects? Oh, you know, yeah. It was for Star Wars. Yeah, I knew. What was it called at the time? What was it called at the time? it wasn't Star Wars, right? Well, when I eventually, by the way, I didn't read the script until after I got the part. Oh. So it was based on this one scene. And I couldn't figure it out. I mean, I went, (laughs) I remember I tested with Harrison. He had been in American Graffiti. So I'm with him and I'm saying, hey, you got to let me know, is this like a parody? Is this sort of like a Mel Brooks <laughs> send-up? And Harrison was like, hey, whatever, let's, <laughs> let's just get it done. So, as though he was no help. And then with George, I did the same thing. And he said, um, well, let, let's just try one. And we'll talk about it later. Sure. Which I realized over the years means <laughs> let's just do it and we'll never talk about it later. <laughs> he doesn't like deep analysis right. He doesn't want to hear about backstory or motivation. Just do it. I mean, I'm sure he casts people that are so close to what he wants that he doesn't have to do major overhauls. That's where I wanted to go next, because I guess, how did you find out you had the part? And did he ever tell you why he went with you? Because for trivia purposes, at that point, it's still Luke Starkiller, not Luke Skywalker, right? right? right. In fact, we shot that scene with, I'm Luke Starkiller, I'm here to rescue you. (laughs) And later I got the call sheet and I said, what's this scene on the call sheet we already did that they said well uh, let george tell you about it and they changed the name because focus groups they didn't like the word kill in my name for like thinking about manson at that well point. i don't know yeah. i just thought well this character could use as much machoing up as possible <laughs> and i was so used to star killer at that right. point that i said skywalker oh george right. that sounds like fly swatter it's so <laughs> lame anyway now of course you can't think of it being anything other than that 
Well, my agent called and she said, you got the part. They're sending the script over. And when the script came, I sat in a chair. I was living in a one bedroom. I was single at the time on the beach off the Pacific Coast Highway. And I'll never forget it because the title page said, and this goes circles back to what you were saying. It wasn't called that then. The title page said, the adventures of Luke Starkiller as taken from in smaller print as taken from in the journal of the wills <laughs> w-h-i-l-l-s right saga one the star wars <laughs> and i'm thinking because when i tested harrison was such a leading man in your view in my view yeah. of course i just assumed that he's the protagonist and I'm sort of the annoying sidekick because right. I was in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon and I was going on and bugging him and <laughs> he was like, hey, good, you know. <laughs> and I go, but we can't turn back all that stuff. I was so full of enthusiasm and whatever. Right. I read the script and I said, well, wait a second. I thought I was Luke in the screen test. It must be Harrison though. So I started reading and I realized, oh my gosh, this is through the eyes of basically someone who's like just gotten out of high school, which is unusual in and of itself. And what struck me was how funny it was. I mean, there was such humor, the robots arguing over whose fault it is and things that you could just relate to. Like you rescue this spoiled princess, risk your lives. And the first thing she says when she looks at the spacecraft is, you came in that, <laughs> which is so human. Right. I remember my sisters wanting my dad to drop them off a block away from the school so they didn't have to be seen <laughs> right. in the car they were in. It was so human in a way. Science fiction is usually so dry and serious. I said, well, this is, it's more Wizard of Oz yeah. than it is anything else. And you think it was because you projected that same sort of you know, youthful exuberance and whatever that Luke had, that that's why George wanted. Well, years later, he said he had, I think, what was the word? Something about the enthusiasm and sincerity. Yeah, yeah. And that was lucky. It was just a lucky choice in the sense that if I had sent it up and commented on the performance when I did the screen test, I probably wouldn't have got it. I yeah. said, well, the only thing I can do is try to be as sincere as possible. Yeah. And just play it straight. Yeah, and play it straight. But that was just a total roll of the dice. So as we, you know, move along chronologically here, the thing is there would have only been one of these now five that you've been a part of that are in six that where you would have been on the set without any sense of how big a thing you're a part right. of, sense of pressure, I guess, right. the secrecy, all of the stuff that now exists. And so when you're there with these two other young actors who are trying to make their name, when you've got... Alec Guinness, you've got what must have felt like a probably a larger scale thing than you'd ever been a part of. Was it just fun? Was it stress because this is your first, you know, big part in a big studio movie? Where did you feel at that time? Well, you always have an underlying feeling of performance anxiety because you want to do your best. But it was so much fun. I mean, it was like this giant playground where they gave us robots and floating cars and laser swords. And I mean, it was so much like I used to play in my backyard because I would play Robin Hood and King Kong and all these things, you know, go out into the canyon with my friends. But, you know, I worked with Sir Alec first. We went to North Africa and did that all the desert scenes. And of course, I mean, he's like one of all time great actors of the 20th century. Right. I even said to him, I said, why would you want to be in something like this? 
He said, well, you know, I've always wanted to play a wizard. You know, so in a children's film. Right. But he was everything you wanted him to be and more. He had a great sense of humor. I was surprised of what a fan of Laurel and Hardy he was. And he told me that he used Stan's performances in Man in the White Suit. And he was just so great to be around. And, you know, the grandfather you wish you had. I would pepper him about the lady killers, the Lavender Hill. No, 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 no. I want to hear about your career. I said, really? You want to hear about a soap opera and a dog food commercial? You know, and also he wouldn't let me call him Sir Alec. He once tapped me twice and then it was pretty hard. And I said, ow, what was that for? I want to be known by my name, not my accolade. So I said to him, well, right. can I call you Big Al? See, he loved the irreverence right, right. of American humor. He would roll his eyes and do a face. Right. And once I got, because I was really nervous around right. him, you know, he took me out to lunch so we get to know each other. And then off times in, in Tunisia, we could spend time, you know, there's a lot of waiting around time on a film. Because Harrison and Carrie weren't there. They weren't there yet. And like I said, where I met Harrison at the screen test. And he came over, and he's just so effortlessly Han Solo. Yeah. I mean, he's just cool personified. I mean, it wasn't hard to fall into, like I said, George Cast, so that you're so close to your character that, of course, I, I idolized him. I looked up to him as a mentor and a big brother, and he had all that experience, you know? This was my first movie. What's funny, though, is also I was reading that we think of you and Carrie Fisher as siblings, right. but you were saying in one interview that you know, to some degree, at least, even if it was just a little messing around, there was a little bit of romance there as well, right? And I learned it's not smart to have a relationship <laughs> in a work environment because my girlfriend played my sister on on General Hospital <laughs> and it didn't happen, but it can happen that, you know, the relationship goes sour and you're still got four years on your contract. Right. <laughs> and she was, of course, indescribably funny and irreverent. And she had that side to her. She was spoiled Hollywood royalty. She was perfect, right. see? And each piece of the puzzle was put together, you thought, this works. Because I'm not in competition with Harrison, who's not in competition with Guinness, who's not in competition with the princess. And so once all these pieces came together, all especially running around the Death Star with them, we and the trash compactor, all those <laughs> things, we laughed so hard. You know, we kind of forgot when they assembled the movie that they use only our serious takes. Right, right, right. I wonder if you remember how you experienced opening weekend and how it impacted your life, because I would assume that it was totally different right after. Well, first of all, I didn't see any ads on Saturday Night Live, which is usually where they put new movie trailers and so forth. Carrie and I had gone to a movie theater where we knew the trailer was showing, and she said, go ask the manager or the person in the ticket booth if we can go in and just watch the trailer. I said, you go ask them, you know? <laughs> she was more famous than any of us because right. of Debbie and Eddie, but we actually did go in and watch the trailer. And they had very little finished footage, but I remember a heckler in the audience. <laughs> because somewhere in space, it could all be happening. Cut to, they're coming in too fast! You know, quick cuts right, to whatever right. they had finished because they didn't have a lot of special effects finished. But the tagline at the end was, a billion light years in the making and it's coming to your galaxy this summer. <laughs> Big explosion. 
Somebody in the back of the house goes, yeah, and it's coming to late night TV about a week after that. <laughs> and everybody laughed. We did too. And then we kind of went gulp. Yeah. Because yeah. it was one of those things where it was so outrageous, even though it had elements of cowboy movies, World War II movies and pirate movies and all these things. It was put together in a way that it was unlike anything anybody had seen at that time. But you had no expectation that it would be anywhere as big as it was? Well, not to the degree. I was one of the few true believers because I said, look, even if this thing tanks with the critics, it's going to be so midnight movie fodder, right. you know, on rotation with the Rocky Horror Picture Show because it's trippy. But of course, I had no idea we would become electric toothbrushes and sleeping bags <laughs> and Pez dispensers. So when... It opens, it becomes this massive phenomenon, biggest opening ever. Were you then looking forward to doing another one? Or were you actually now suddenly being offered so many other things that it actually was in some ways a hindrance precluding you from doing other things? No, I was thrilled. I, you know, we signed for three movies with the provision that the first one would have to be successful enough to justify the other two. So I couldn't wait to see what was going to happen next. I remember the day it opened on May 25th, they picked me up because I was going to loop. It's like a dubbing dialogue over. And a lot of those movies are dubbed yeah. because the sound wasn't right. right. So, I mean, all that arch dialogue, plus the added artifice of dubbing after the fact. Right. Thank you, George. Right. But I said to the driver, can you go buy Grauman's Chinese? Was it called Grauman's yeah, Chinese absolutely. at the time? Because I want to see it up on the marquee. You know, I hadn't seen billboard. I hadn't seen any advertising. Right. That made me nervous. And you know, we went probably around, it was probably around 11 or noon on the way to a recording studio deeper in Hollywood. And there were lines around so the this block. Is right. On the first day. The first day was open. And I said, I didn't predict that. I said, you know what will happen? Is it'll open up and all the hardcore sci-fi geeks will go. Right myself included i am a geek myself so don't get offended <laughs> but it'll be word of mouth it'll say oh but it's funny and because women they say have an aversion in generalities i'm speaking mm -hmm. to science fiction i said but wait till they get a load of the princess she's effortlessly right. feminist right. you know you call this a plan give me that gun laser <laughs> brains all that stuff i mean right. she's far from a damsel in no. distress and she makes Han and Luke look like a couple of chumps. Right, at the, right. I did think it would take some time to gain momentum. And it's still inexplicable to me how it was so big from the very first day. And were you able to handle that right away? I mean, it must be overwhelming to be suddenly the three most famous movie stars well, in the world. Well, it's like an out-of-body experience. It's like seeing yourself in a newsreel. It's like this can't be happening you would get mobbed or something. And I don't go out, you know, I mean, it would happen at airports and big public places, but it was still a pinch me situation. I mean, it didn't feel like, ah, now I've made it, you know, right. it felt like, well, now you've got to prove yourself. And I'm not going to spend as much time on each of the others because I know we've got a lot to cover, but I do want to just note Empire Strikes Back three years later, different situation because you've now got George's teacher, Irvin Kirshner, directing it. You've said you felt it was a more cerebral script, so you were happy to be doing it. And, of course, probably the most famous scene in all of the Star Wars movies, I would guess, is the one in which you have a big discovery about a relative. Can you just share, since that's such an iconic moment of this whole thing, how that worked? And I guess this is the first big secret you had to keep right. from the franchise. Well, there was a substitute line in the script just to keep it a secret. 
Kirshner pulled me aside one day and said, there's something I know and George knows. And when I tell you, you'll know. So if it leaks, we'll know it's you. Right. I mean, talk about <laughs> pressure. The dummy line that was in there was a great plot twist anyway, because Vader in the phony line to protect the real line was, you don't know the truth. Obi-Wan killed your father. <laughs> and then I played it just like you see in the movie. No, right. that's not true. That's impossible. Search your feelings. You know, it's true. And I thought, wow, if they're making Alec Guinness, the head baddie, right. that is amazing. I mean, it was the shocking. So when he told me what the real line was going to be, I was, the British have a word for it, gobsmacked. Right. But you had already acted your part. Or you had not? No, yet. no, okay. I was going to. And okay. he says, oh, you'll just have to know when they right. when deliver that line, they'll pull it out. And this was, like you say, the first time where anybody really cared about secrecy and leaks and so forth. And by the way, if we shot that, let's say on a Tuesday, within two days, whatever day we shot it, there was one day. And then the very next day on the front page of a British paper, it says, Guinness head baddie in Star Wars 2. <laughs> Some sound guy got rich well, doing Well, whoever, <laughs> I mean, they had stunt people, they had stormtrooper extras, and I'm surprised they could even hear it because we were up on a rostrum with wind machines going, you know, you could barely now, normally right. with Yoda, when the sound would go out of an earpiece because Frank Oz was under the floor, I could know when to come in when his mouth stopped moving. Try that with Darth Vader. <laughs> Doesn't work. You know, I could barely hear him. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, shortly after the release of that film, I really admire the fact that you went and did what you had always wanted to do out of the gate, which was a lot of theater. I think four Broadway shows throughout just the 80s, starting with replacement parts, I think, in Amadeus and Elephant Man, and then originating roles in Harrigan and Hart and The Nerd. So why between the Star Wars films and after, when your stock was presumably as high as it could be, right. why was it important to you to go and do that? Well, like you say, that's what I'd always aspired to do theater. And it was a way to do character parts because you do one thing well in Hollywood, they want you to do it over and over and over again. I mean, even in animation, I did the Joker and then that's all I'm typed as a villain in right. animation, which is funny because you like, how do you get typed in animation? Right. But I'd say 85% of my roles are villainous right. in animation. Well, what happened was I auditioned for the replacement to Tim Curry in Amadeus. Mm -hmm. And I knew I almost got it because a lot of times they say, well, well done. And they're just being kind. In this case, they put me up in a hotel to wait to see if Peter Firth could get his green card. Oh. And I hate having negative energy, but I'm in the hotel room going, please don't give him his green card. Please don't <laughs> give him his green card. Well, he got his green card. And as a sort of a consolation prize, since they were the same producers as Elephant Man, they said, if you read with Jack Hotsis, the director, we think you should do Elephant Man, which I did. Then I did the first national tour of Amadeus. It was directed by Sir Peter Hall, who yes. directed the original. That was a great experience. And I went to various cities, and then they transferred me to Broadway. Were you interested in reprising that in the movie version with Mr. Foreman? Oh, of course. Yeah. And in fact, he asked me to come in and read with actresses as Costanza, you know, his wife. Uh, yeah. So it was a hotel in Beverly Hills. And it's kind of a relaxing exercise because the focus is all on whoever's up for the part. So I read with all these wonderful actresses playing Costanza. And later in the day, I said to him, I said, and you know, Mr. Foreman, I did it for nearly a year and I'd love to be considered for Mozart. And he just laughed. He said, ha, 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 no, because no one is to be believing that the Luke Skywalker is the Mozart. <laughs> <laughs> 
in those words. <laughs> oh my God. I said, oh, well. So that was something, though, that I imagine in some ways you were probably encountering and certainly would encounter where it's like in some ways in Hollywood, as you referenced earlier, you get almost punished for doing something well because right. people have a lack of imagination. Where we're supposedly all about imagination, yeah. it's not always there. How did you decide to handle that? Because you, Well, yeah. typecasting is sort of a paradox because even though it implies you're doing the same part, it means you're working. Right. That's yeah. I mean, did typecasting hurt John Wayne? I don't <laughs> right, think so. Right, and right. he's pretty much the same guy right. in every movie. Again, don't send me angry letters. But I love John <laughs> Wayne too. So it was an effort to break out of so-called typecasting and kill two birds with one stone. Do theater because you love it. And then do like off Broadway when Alan Arkin cast me in room service, all the yeah. critics thought I was playing the innocent playwright. Right. Call Lee, I've never been in New York City before. Instead, I was I was Gordon Miller, you know, that sleazy guy. <laughs> and so in a way, it set me up in a way that you could surprise people. Right. In a way, that was your best opportunity to show that you could yeah, do yeah. it. Yeah. And Peter Hall, he'd never seen Star Wars. When I auditioned right. for Amadeus, he could see I was stage trained and I had good movement and good dialect. So believe me, I forget how it came up, but I know that he gave me some speech on opening night and mentioned that someday he'll hope to see Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> he hadn't seen it yet. Well, so you go back again with this three-year gap. You do the third of the original trilogy, the first without Gary Kurtz as a producer, who I know is somebody that was important to you as yes. well and passed away last September. Yeah. In this case, just the one kind of funny thing is, as referenced earlier, we find out that Luke and Leia have a oh different relationship. Gosh. I heard that you were just appalled at the idea that was this just trying to top the I am your father? Or? George always said that he had them all plotted out, but you could tell along the way he was tweaking. I mean, right. but he had an overall feeling for whether it was just to, because I remember pitching, I said, how about Boba Fett takes off his helmet, <laughs> shakes out long, beautiful hair, and it turns out to be our long lost mother <laughs> working as a double agent. You know, I have lots of terrible ideas I'd like to share with the Star Wars people. But I remember we were in the room when it happened, because again, it wasn't in the script. They had Carrie in and the director and I forget who else. But anyway, they said, and it's going to be revealed that Luke and Leia are brother and sister. And there was this kind of stunned silence. And I think I broke it by saying, wait a minute, if Luke is the brother of Princess Leia, does does that mean that Luke is royalty? And Carrie immediately went, no. <laughs> <laughs> I said, all right, I'm just asking. Put it in your place. Yeah. Seriously. Well, she really, I love the fact that right. she reveled in being like the only main woman. Right, right. You know, there were token women back at the right. rebel base and so forth, but she loved that and she loved being the princess. Royalty, right, right. Yeah, she loved it. She adored it. So it was very important to her. And by the way, since I knew that got under her skin, yeah. I never let up on that <laughs> for the rest of our lives. I, when I met Prince William and Harry, right. I presented my case. I that said, you're the Look, prince. <laughs> Queen Amidala, Lord Vader, right. Princess Leia, does that make me a royal? <laughs> William said, oh, absolutely. And... <laughs> But Harry said, mm, I think I need more information. I was hoping it would be a unanimous, but it was a split decision. A split decision. Yeah. So after you finished Return of the Jedi, did you think there was any chance that there would ever be more Star Wars movies or that if there were, you would be a part of them? Or was that it? 
No, I knew there would be more Star Wars movies, but I had no idea I'd be a part of them. I knew he was going to go back and do the prequels because I remember saying to him, why is this episode four? Right. Right, when right, we right. were shooting in Africa before I even met Carrie and Harrison, that was one of my questions. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, I want the audience to get the feeling that they've come in yes. in the middle of a serial. Yeah. So, you know, like you would miss chapters when you were a kid. But even if they had gone forward to seven, eight, nine, I just assumed it would be all new characters set far enough in the future that they wouldn't include us right. because they never spoke to us about it. Although one time he said... Would you play, uh, I don't know. I mean, it turns out later he was just pulling my leg. So, but no, my answer is I had absolutely no inkling that we'd ever do it again. And in fact, it seems like for the very most part for the, I don't know, like six or so years after that third one that you'd made, you weren't really doing much on the big screen until Slipstream where you're back working with Gary Kurtz, but, and suddenly you're a, a bearded bounty hunter, a very big departure. But someone asked you at the time why you hadn't continued making films after Return of the Jedi. And you said, quote, I was over 30 and still getting scripts in which I lost my virginity. I had the image of a callow, innocent, blonde, goody-goody. So I decided to disappear from the cinema until I was believable as an adult, close quote. So was that a, you know, that was truly the heart of the issue that you looked so young or that you looked too much like Luke Skywalker? Maybe a little of both. One thing I loved about Slipstream, now had that been a hit, yeah. I thought, I'll, I'll be a Bond villain for sure. Because he was so ruthless and so relentless, so humorless and so different than the way people had seen me. But it's luck of the draw. It didn't really uh, get the audience it deserved. And so it's sort of like a, a cult film now. But, you know, you, this, that's showbiz. You try right. something, you hope it works. If it doesn't, you move on and do something else. And for you, the something else really, I guess, primarily starting in the maybe early 90s would have been voice acting yeah, with and again who because i did all that in new york i mean you left out six dance lessons in yes. six weeks and so forth so i did i don't know seven shows back there but who knew that the real thing that i was looking for to break out as a character actor would come in animation right. and it, it came from my love of comic books because i read about the series they were planning and i said oh these people are serious based on the people they're hiring and the fact that what they're attempting to do is a show that uh, stands alongside the Max Fleischer Superman theatrical cartoons. I said, they're going for it. It's not going to be Saturday morning super friends. It's going to be, I'll bet you, based on these people, it's going to be well-written and all these things. So I said to my agent, I'd love to get out on that. Mm -hmm. And once they heard, they gave me a role in the uh, Mr. Freeze episode, Mm -hmm. which I read it and said, I was so right about this show. It's, It's deep, it's melancholy, it writes up to kids rather than being juvenile. Right. I was just stunned at how well-written it was. Paul Dini won an Emmy for it later as the, for the best script. Of course, I said to my agent, I said, oh, will I be using a German accent or <laughs> should I go back to the original comics? He was called Mr. Zero. He, right. he said, you're not playing Mr. Freeze. Relax. <laughs> That's Michael and Sarah. You know what? No. But we have to say, you really did become and I think remain one of the very best voice actors, which is a totally different... Skill then, so it's to have a second skill that you're great at. And it started with the Joker, but it's included Avengers Assemble, Troll Hunter, so many different, you know, Justice League action. We can go on and on and continues very much to this day. I'm in the the Dark Crystal prequel. Yes. So 
Yeah, well, what I love about voiceover is they cast with their ears, not their eyes. Right. So you're going to be able to do parts you'd never get if you were on camera and use dialects. I mean, you know, that, like I say, I've, for years I've been so interested in how differently people speak around the world. And like I say, I said, where has this been all my life? Right. I had done one animated series when I was still a teenager over at Hanna-Barbera. But mm -hmm. when I went in to do the one Joker episode... I was peppering them with questions. You know, are you going to use Raja Ghoul? Are you going to do Clayface? Are you going to do episodes where there's no villain? Like in the comics, where there's gothic romance, there's detective stories. Is he going to be a detective? They're like, relax, you got the, <laughs> you got the part. But they did remember my enthusiasm for it. Right. So when they decided to replace the original actor doing the Joker, I auditioned for that one. They didn't just give me that because the other character was sort of an insincere businessman. Mm -hmm. I was really channeling Phil Hartman and then Bruce, Bruce, right? Big phony guy who was sort of, uh, <laughs> you know, too, you know, um, insincere behind right. the scenes. But in any case, the factor that worked in my favor was they were just coming off that furor of casting Michael Keaton as Batman. And the fans went, oh, he can't be Batman. He's Mr. Mama. I mean, mind you, before anyone had seen him do right, the part at all right, right. and before seeing how great he was, but they were coming right off that. So I had sort of a certain comfort level because I said, there's no way they're going to cast Luke Skywalker, this icon of virtue as the, one of the most iconic villains of all time. So knowing that I wouldn't be able to get it, I, my goal was I'm going to make them so sorry they can't hire me. Right. And I'd come off of nine months of 10 months of Amadeus where you could play with the laugh. You can't change the dialogue, but to keep it fresh for yourself, I would play with the laugh. I'd get notes from the stage manager, little Jerry Lewis at the matinee, watch it, you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. So I had this arsenal of laughs and, uh, and I said, I had one drawing to go by. And he seemed to be old teeth, old teeth. <laughs> and so I put a little blue meanie in it from Yellow Submarine, a little That's Claude right. Rains. I don't know how. I mean, I, I didn't consciously decide, oh, this is how I'm going to do it. But based on the drawing, I, I did the audition. And like I say, I only lost confidence in myself when they said, you got it. Because I went, oh, no. I, said, <laughs> I told you I wanted to do a character that had never been seen before. Right. I mean, Cesar Romero had done it. Mm -hmm. Jack Nicholson. What actor in their right mind would follow well, Jack Nicholson it, in anything? Well, as it turns out, it, it worked out great. So there's 32 years between Return of the Jedi and Force Awakens. And in that time, as we've said, there's all this great voice acting, a lot of theater, other movies. But... Throughout that period, because the, the Star Wars films don't ever really become dated, there's nothing that dates them. Right. And there's new generations of kids coming along. They think we made them last month. Yeah. So what's that like when you're well, constantly going to being... the airport and the grown up parents go, look, honey, to their four year old. Right. It's Luke Skywalker. And they're looking up at this 50 something <laughs> man aghast, like, oh, my God, what happened to this guy? He really let himself go. Oh, but it's got to be cool to know that, you know, it, it just. It's timeless, but... Well, it's also, I think, reassuring for young people to see the way we are now, because aging yeah. is a natural process. Yeah. So if nothing else, to check in with everybody and show, you know, the way we are now, that was healthy. Well, and that, though, was never a guaranteed thing. How did it first come to your attention that A, George is selling Lucasfilm to Disney, and B, Disney now wants the Holy Trinity back for a new trilogy? Well, it came in stages. 
had he told us they were selling it to Disney, I would have bought, I won't have run out and bought stock. So <laughs> that's insider trading. So he didn't tell us that. We were at a, um, a Star Wars convention and George said that he wanted to have lunch with Carrie and I mm -hmm. and, and my wife. And I just assumed my daughter would come with us. And when I said that, they said, no, Chelsea's going to have lunch with George's daughter. So we knew something was up. Right. And my wife said, well, I wonder what, I wonder if he wants to do a new trilogy. And I just laughed because I said, no, honey, he specifically said he's not doing that. And after the prequels, that's it. Right. So uh, it's got to be something like doing a new documentary to supplement the Blu-rays or whoever, because we've done things over the years for him. We owe him so much that, you know, that we're uh, fall under the promotional category. So when he said, well, um, I'm leaving Lucasfilm and uh, he didn't say selling it to Disney, you know, Kathy Kennedy going to take over and they, they want to do a new trilogy. <laughs> I kept a poker face. Right. Inside, of course, I was freaking out. Right. But I kept a poker face. Carrie again. Slaps the table, goes, I'm in. <laughs> so much for negotiating. I know, I said to her later, I said, Carrie, right. poker right. face. I mean, even if you want to do it, let the, your agent dangle the right. possibility that you're you unavailable. And again, she cuts right to the chase. She goes, Mark, what kind of parts are there for women over 50 right. in Hollywood? Right. See, she was so pragmatic in that way. Did you wait for Harrison? Well, I thought he's my only, because I, I wasn't sure. I said, oh, we had a beginning, a middle, and end. You know, why mess with that? And I said, but my only escape is the fact that I know Harrison won't do it. He's too accomplished. He's too content. Mm -hmm. He's too cranky. He's not going <laughs> to do these movies. Why should he? And so I said, that, that would be the only way I'd be able to get away with politely declining. But when I read in the press that he had accepted, I said, well, I just, I've been drafted. Well, I, I want to ask you what it's now for these, the two most recent, what it's been like to come back and basically be directed by people who were not even aware of what was going on in the world when, when these original trilogy came out. Now they're doing it. I mean, you've, you've been very honest and I think said you have, you're very happy, I think, with how they turned out. Great respect for the filmmakers, but it, it was certainly jarring to A, find out with Force Awakens that there's a, a relatively small and late appearance and then with last jedi that the explanations for what's been happening over all these intervening years are darker than you would have maybe chosen yourself how do you reconcile this understandable protectiveness over a character that you've played for longer than almost any other screen actor and character relationship has ever existed with the understanding that it's part of a larger thing well it's certainly been challenging <laughs> And by the way, you know, the, the, everyone talks about the shock of realizing that on Force Awakens, I don't come in to the last page. A bigger shock to me was them killing Han Solo right. before Luke could ever see his best friend again. Right. I mean, it might be so selfishly motivated, but I said, holy cow, that's a real missed opportunity. Even having the three of us together, even briefly, right. I pitched Abrams on the idea of, you know, you can still have me come in at the very end, but how about this? How about uh, Leia's trying to contact me to, uh, telepathically? She gets frustrated because there's no answers, so she rushes to the new Death Star. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> That's three uh, so far. but <laughs> And she almost gets there when she's stopped by two 
stormtroopers and just about just before she's abducted one stormtrooper turns to the other blows him away pulls off his helmet and says hi sis i'm here to rescue you i said it'll blow the roof yeah. off the joint i'm right. still in at the very end and i think it's more effective to have people that really have a history with han solo witness his death and be unable to right. stop it right. his wife the mother of his child his best friend Instead of two characters that have known him, what, 20 minutes? Right. But, you know, they they get the keys to the kingdom. Right. And they get to, you know, they're the deciders. So Well, the one place where we did, we're very lucky to get to see the three of you together for one last time was the premiere in Hollywood, which was one of the greatest, most exciting things I've ever been lucky enough to be oh, in good. attendance for. I'm glad for. you enjoyed it. Uh, I mean, just to have the, the three of you. And I'm sure that who could have ever imagine that basically a year, almost exactly a year later, that's when we lost Carrie. And so I just, I guess I wonder for you, was that, did that have some poignance too, to have that, that last time where you're all together with, in the place where it all started? Of course. And, you know, at least I had that one scene with Carrie. We were never reunited all, all of us together, but, uh, you know, I played it because, I knew Luke was going to die, so it would be the last time I saw her. And it took on such a different meaning after the real life events that it just throws me out of the movie. I haven't really been able to process that the way I should. And it's hard because you go out when I did the press for The Last Jedi, obviously everyone wants to talk about it. Mm -hmm. So you find yourself endlessly mm -hmm. grieving in, in public. And it's it's just hard, and uh, it's you know it's still so sad. Mm. She had impeccable timing, except in this case, because you know Harrison was more prominent in seven, I was more prominent in eight. She was meant to be more prominent in nine, but you know. Yeah, the last thing pre Nightfall is just you mentioned that you say Luke died. There's been some speculation did he die or did he teleport or what's yeah, going on yeah. well i you know i love teasing fans yes. on, on the internet they call it trolling i call it teasing right. of course when you've been the trickster and the joker nobody takes nope. anything you say seriously <laughs> it's like the boy who cried wolf well i love no, that you go after Trump. well someone right. said well how come his hand when he disappeared his hand didn't clunk fall onto the mm -hmm. rock because it's inorganic matter and I said, see, it proves my theory that Luke left his robes behind and teleported to a nudist planet. <laughs> That's my theory, That's and theory. I'm sticking to it. Right. But I, I'm just having fun. I yeah. mean, although, I mean, you don't know, because we can't talk about I, Nine, so who knows? But there, I think you happens. have said that during Nightfall, yeah. you may have been engaged with another film project. Right. But we'll we'll wait to see, but uh, <laughs> so unless you unless you feel like getting some un, unburdening yourself of anything. Well, people know I'm in 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 nine, so right. it's not a big surprise. All right, so I have really enjoyed catching up with Nightfall. This is a show about the Knights Templar, Catholic Order of Warrior Monks. You are playing Talus, who in this basically fought in the Crusades, was held captive for a decade in the Holy Land, and is now training new initiates into the order a real sob if you i hope i don't uh, you know offend you by saying that oh this my guy. Ears. so yes this is on history it can be streamed if people want to catch up that way it's second season debuted on march 25th you have in one interview described it as game of thrones without the dragons which i loved <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, how'd you first hear about it and what drew you to it after it had already been on the air for this one season before well they sent me discs of the first season saying would you be interested in being in the second season 
And uh, I put them on with absolutely no intention of leaving my living room to go to Prague for five months. <laughs> but I saw about 20 minutes in, I said, oh my God, this is unlike any series I've been a part of right. or movie I've been a part right. of. And it's epic. It's a largely British cast. And how they would think of me to play such a hardened bastard as Talos is just a, is, is a compliment. So I really think if I turn this down, I'll never get an opportunity like this again. And I was immediately drawn in. Tom Cullen is such a sympathetic protagonist. It's all seen through his eyes. Even though I'm not like a traditional antagonist, the hero always has to do something and there's obstacles in his way. Mm -hmm. And my character is like his major yes. obstacle. Had you ever had such a physical transformation for a part where literally if, if somebody just happened upon the show right. and didn't see the opening credits or whatever, they would have no idea it's you. What does that entail to become this guy? Oh my God. It's hours of preparation. Cause there's, you know, the, I have a full wig, a full mustache, a full beard, facial scars, age spots, all this stuff. So you're in the makeup chair over an hour every day and you know the wardrobe is cumbersome and heavy and there's shoulder pads and capes and belts and swords and axes all of it but the the end result is you look in the mirror and you go that's not me so it really liberates you to take chances and do things that you wouldn't ordinarily do oh it's amazing and i i also wonder just from the psychological where you have to kind of like figure out why your character does what he does or what they're like. I mean, all these guys, the Templar Knights, they, they consider themselves warriors for God, and yet they're killing on a regular basis. Yes, Do yes. you have to figure out those mental gymnastics to make that? Well, that's uh, one of the lines, you know, that's jumped out at me, you know. Once your training is complete, you shall become one of God's executioners. <laughs> and I thought, look, I only have a rudimentary grasp of religion, but... My, one of my favorite commandments is thou shalt not kill. Right. right up there with thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Right. And uh, so it, it seems like a paradox. And, and yet he's such a zealot. He's so devoted to Christ and, you know, believes that what he's doing is right. And the, all the rest are infidels that are unworthy uh, to live. So... But I love that. I love uh, being pushed out of my comfort zone mm -hmm. and doing something as, as challenging as playing a character That'd be a like lot of, A lot of dialogue to, to learn each time. <laughs> and it was terrible because I thought, you know, because I would run lines and so forth. But it, it's stylized dialogue. Yeah, it's yeah. not like sitting here with you and right. listening to your question and then I answer back. When you're lecturing these initiates, sometimes they're like three pages of just dialogue. And I, I at one point I said... Oh, gosh, I don't know. I might need cue cards. And Prop said, well, we need 72 hours notice. I said, what are you talking about? Just get white cardboard. <laughs> right. I'll bring my own Sharpie right. and write it myself. <laughs> but as it was, I talked to the director and I, you know, I had it enough so that when I knew that they would break it down. So we would do like one and a half pages and then there would be, they would block it. So not for me, but I, I found ways of just barely avoiding the teleprompter, which I don't know if they even had them right, right. or cue cards, but it was, like I say, taxing to the max. Well, people 
are of course i think probably anything you do there are going to be people looking for connections to star wars and in this case <laughs> i'm reading some of the stuff online there they you know i guess there may be something to the fact that were the knights templar an inspiration for the jedi well i think george took source material from anything that it impressed him uh, as a kid growing up whether it was treasure island or sir lancelot and uh, knights of the round table I'm, I'm absolutely sure that that of course because historically, they were the model for our modern-day interpretation of knights. But like I say, the, the movie, the, the show is so gritty, and trying to adhere to historical accuracy as best they can, that it's unlike sort of the idealized Ivanhoe right. and Camelot and so forth. This is gritty and grimy. You can almost smell the disease. Yes. <laughs> That's why I use the hashtag, all the glamour of the 14th century. Right, right. Exactly. Because I, you just can't imagine what life must have been like then when you had to have six children, have one survive, where old age was late 40s. I mean, I know, no Charmin. It was brutal. So for people in the industry listening who may have assumed that, you know, you just prefer to play golf or go fishing or whatever with your discretionary time. And now they realize that you might actually watch something they send you and consider being a part of it. Is that in fact the case? What sort of jobs are you open to at this point? Well, I'll know it when I see it. Yeah. I remember reading an interview with Spencer Tracy later in his career and they said, what do you look for in a script? And he thought for a moment, he said, days off. <laughs> and I so relate to that because I've right. said before, a day spent all day in your pajamas is a win. Right. I love the little piece of land I have, playing with the dogs, hanging out, reading. And we don't want to spread the word that I'm <laughs> looking for more time. Right. I don't want to go to... Uh, location work is hard. I mean, the good thing about it is you can concentrate on nothing but the work. You know, there was a point during nightfall where I thought maybe... I've bitten off more than I can chew because like it was grueling. Yeah. You know, 16 hour days. And like you say, that all the dialogue and the, the prep and everything. I thought if I could just get through this. Right, right. And I think there's a weariness that's genuine <laughs> in my performance. <laughs> well, with our last minute, I wonder if we can just, we always close with sort of a rapid fire. Just the first thing sure. that comes to your mind. Number one, in which order should people watch the Star Wars films? I think chronologically as they were released. How many times have you seen the Star Wars films? I don't know how many total, but I know the last time I saw them was 21 years ago when they were re-released as special editions. Wow. And even then I didn't plan to go to the theater. I said, well, just send me copies uh, to Lucasfilm. And my kids were young then and said, oh, daddy, but we haven't seen them in the theater. <laughs> I thought, well, you got a point. Right. They'd only seen them on home video. So right. we saw each one once. In 1998. Got it. Which, in your opinion, which is certainly very valid, is the best Star Wars film? If only one could be saved from a fire. Oh, gosh. You know, it's like pick your favorite child. Right. You like, like them all for different reasons. Right. I guess probably I'd have to go with Empire only because it was so unexpected to have the protagonist be so f soundly defeated. Right. You know, losing the hand and the... Dad Vader, all of it was pretty unexpected. And it was much more cerebral. I mean, Yoda is such an important addition yes. to the mythology. And I thought it was so clever of George to kind of the concept of the force so that you can talk about religion and spirituality without making everybody uncomfortable. Right. So for that alone. Sure. 
it makes sense that Disney, which obviously paid a lot of money for Lucasfilm, would want to capitalize on its investment, put out a lot of Star Wars movies. Last year, solo Star Wars film performed a, a little bit under expectations. Do you believe it's possible? Some people have speculated, is this is there such a thing as quote unquote Star Wars fatigue? Can that exist? Yes. So you think space them out a little bit? Well, I don't know. I'm not going to tell them how to run their business, but the, is there a possibilities of Star Wars fatigue? Yeah, I think there is. I've experienced it to a certain degree, <laughs> but they never listen to my ideas anyway. So well, just the corollary to that, just a quick corollary. They're apparently yeah. going to, now there's Disney plus, which is going to be TV streaming. They're going to have some star Wars content and maybe yeah. animation potentially with, they which could use animation. some, what could there be? Clone there could Wars be, and rebels. And what's it called? The Ma Mandalorian. That's a John Favreau TV series. Okay. So would you as a voice actor remain involved? Well, again, make me an offer. <laughs> right. And not, last question, yeah. last of these rapid fire. If you stop and think about it, which I guess an occasion like this sort of requires, can you quite process how big, can you actually step back and objectively appreciate how big this thing is around the world? And also, what would you be doing today if on that day that you went in for the cattle call, they had gone with the other guy? I'd be on the beach with a metal detector. <laughs> uh, but... You know, every time you think you have processed the enormity of it all, you're reminded again, because it's touching in a way. Parents raise their kids, don't talk to strangers, but everybody knows me, you know? <laughs> and, and so wherever you go, they relate stories of, you know, it's so woven into the fabric of their lives. This one got me through my mother's illness. I met my wife online on this one, and then by the... Next one, we had twins that we named Luke and Leia. I mean, you're just like, <laughs> really? So I never take that for granted. And like I say, it's moving sometimes to see these kids when I visit the hospitals. And, and you know, you'll meet a kid that has lost a limb. And he says, I didn't worry because Luke lost his hand and he still was a Jedi. I mean, oh, my gosh. It's a harrowing experience to meet these kids facing such dire medical issues. But it's so fulfilling. I think it's the best thing I've ever done. In fact, when you go back to d doing some goofy cartoon show, you go, why am I wasting my... I shouldn't be at a children's hospital right now. I do believe in giving back as best I can because I've been incredibly lucky and I'm so grateful. And uh, and I, like I say, the, the public, the, those are the, the people that I meet, the people that have expressed their love for it or how it's inspired them. Across the board, police officers and scientists. I went to that Jeff Bezos uh, consortium of, it was like every night, three nights where you'd be at a table with all geniuses and me. <laughs> and, <laughs> but so many of them, like this guy, I mean, he's showing me on his phone all these robotics he created. And he said, you know, well, that's because I was 11 and I saw such and such. And I said, that's what I want to be. So it's truly amazing. And it continues to be. Well, it's been a, a real treat. Thank you so much. And I Thank guess you. I have to say, may the force be with you. Of course. <laughs> right back at you, big guy. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. 
If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in.